Great, let's grab our seats. As we start a new... Is this on? There you go. I even wore a shirt today. I know. I had a date night last night and it was left over, so I thought we'd be in the start of a new series. We should go for it again today. I did have a small incident today as well. I was leaving. I was in a rush because we were trying to go to a starting point, which is a wonderful time, and there was a small part of my notes that I realized that is not true. So I tried to white it out, and then I spilt the white out. So when we get to the fourth page, things might go a bit hazy, okay? But hopefully the Lord has burnt it into my heart, Whew, and we'll be okay. It is so good to be in a, in a new series together. So I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Exodus. You know, whenever we're thinking through as a pastoral team uh, what to preach next, there's a lot of thought that actually goes into that, and we decided over a period of time on the book of Exodus for really three different reasons. First of all, it's in the Old Testament. You know, we do a lot of New Testament stuff, and so we wanted to make sure we're bringing the whole counsel of God to us as a congregation, and so we knew we wanted to pick an Old Testament book. And Exodus seemed like a wonderful pick because Exodus is such a foundational book in the entire Bible. So much of the Old Testament looks back to Exodus And so much of the New Testament refers back to Exodus again and again and again. So it's a profoundly foundational book. And accordingly, there are some themes in the book of Exodus that we really wanted to make sure we're covering as a church. And so we decided on the book of Exodus. And so I'm going to open it up right now with the first seven verses. Why don't we stand together as we read these seven verses? Because I want to remind you that this is the Word of God. These are the words of your God. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came out of Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. This is the word of the Lord. Take your seats. Lord, we do thank you for your word. Lord, I do pray that as we gather week after week around your inspired holy word, Lord, would it come alive in our hearts. Lord, would you help us to see how this exodus is in fact our exodus. It's our story as well. And so, Lord, bring it alive through the gift of preaching. Lord, help each of the preachers to have eyes only for you. And then deeply desire to pull the congregation into you. And Lord, would you bless our hearing. Lord, not only in the actual hearing, but in the doing. Would we see ourselves? Would we see you? Would we apply this for your glory? And Lord, today as we begin, open our eyes, Lord. Make us pregnant with the beginning of Exodus. 
dazzle us by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, at the start of any musical or play or book or film, what happens in the opening scene and the introduction is always profoundly important. It's so usually in the opening scene of a musical or a film or a book that you introduce to people and scenery and dates and details that if you miss, you're in a lot of trouble. That's whenever I take my family to the cinema and instruct them the first two minutes are vital. Because I don't want questions 20 minutes in going, what's happening now? What's happening now? You found out 20 minutes ago. Pay attention. And this start of the book is exactly the same. Exodus works exactly the same. What happens here in these first seven verses is profoundly important when it comes to understanding people and scenery and dates and details. And what we have here in these first seven verses is really a pregnant beginning, which is what I've called the title of this message, A Pregnant Beginning. Beginning. There is so much detail in these seven verses, which if you're like me, you can just have to skip over and go, yeah, got it, thanks very much, I'm not sure what's really in there. But it's profoundly important that we understand what is in there, because we will never understand the rest of the book of Exodus, and therefore the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament, unless we understand what's happening here in these seven verses. And so I have three points this morning that I hope are going to help us to unpack what's happening in these seven verses. First of all, I want us to look back. You see, in all reality, Exodus really is Genesis part two. You have to understand that. It's the second book of the Pentateuch. Pentateuch, which you all know, is the first five books. Pentateuch literally translate as book of five. They're really five parts. Lord of the Rings has three parts. The book of Genesis has five parts. It's really a five-part story that helps us understand the way it was in the beginning and all that happened in the first place as the foundations, not only of Israel, but indeed all Christianity. And so one of the things that you won't know, but and it doesn't even translate that well in the English, but it really should. There's a small Hebrew letter, which is a vav, which is a bit like a walking stick with a little hook on And whenever you put that letter at the front of a word, it means and. Well, in each of the books of the Pentateuch, it starts with that letter Vav. And so what it should say is, and these are the names of the sons of Israel. But that's bad English. That's where you get taught in school. So they take it out. But that is what it should say. Because each of the books start with an and to help them see this is just carrying on. This is just carrying on. This is just carrying on from what's gone before. And so I want us to start by looking back, because we're never going to understand Exodus until we understand what's happened in Genesis part one. And then I want us to, number two, I want us to look forward. See, as with any journey, I think it's helpful when you understand where we're really going and how we're going to get there and how long it's going to take to get there. You start to see yourself better in the journey and understand the pacing of the journey when you understand the different things we're going to see along the way. And then as the third part, I want us to understand what to look out for. What are the things that are critical that we shouldn't miss? As we're looking out the window on this great journey, what are the things that I want you to pay distinct attention to? Because Moses, as the author of this book, wants you to take distinct attention to. And so let's begin number one with look back. And to look back, we have to look back to Genesis, because as I said, this really is Genesis part two. And so let's just take a trip down memory lane a minute to understand Genesis, because it's not going to make sense about the Exodus and people leaving Egypt until you understand what on earth they were doing there. How did they get there and how did this happen? 
See, Genesis begins then in chapter 1 and chapter 2 with the glories of creation and the reality that God created all things. Had God created all things by the power and might of his word. And so the sun and the moon and the stars, the land and the sea and the earth and the plants and the trees and the animals. And as the pinnacle of all creation, God made man. The first time you ever see the Godhead, Father, Son and Holy Spirit in counsel and talking to one another is right early on in the book of Genesis when they're discussing how they're going to make men. And as Godhead, then he makes man, male and female, he makes them. Equal in value and worth and splendor and dignity before the Lord. Equal with role to reflect the glory of God back to him. But different in role, understanding that the Godhead is indifferent in role. And then we see the very first marriage. Adam and Eve coming together before the Lord as a married couple. And God then entrusted to this dear couple the task of tending to creation and living in intimate relationship with him. And that's what they did. They tended to creation and they lived in the garden with the Lord. They walked with the Lord in intimate and close relationship with him. But then sin comes into the world. The serpent, Satan himself, convinces this couple to distrust and disobey God. He convinces them that, listen, that one thing that he told you not to do, that's what will set you free. That's what will bring you happiness. That's what will bring you joy in a way that you simply can't experience without it. And the one thing that God had said not to do, to eat of the forbidden fruit, was the very thing then they decided to do. Adam should have been leading throughout, but he wasn't. Eve's there. So, oh, this looks very nice. And she's taking a bite. Here, do you want a bit? And he's like, oh, yes, I'd like a bit. He's just so weak. But he eats of the fruit. And in that point, sin comes into the world. And in that moment, they shatter their relationship with the holy God. They splinter their relationship with each other. And they are driven from the garden. And as we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 4, we see then that things just go from bad to worse in early mankind as they really go on a downward spiral of greed and envy and murder and suffering and difficulty and death and everything just begins to multiply around them in terms of difficulty. Well, by chapter 5, God is so grieved by the state of creation in mankind that he decides he's going to wipe them out and start again. And yet in his grace, he talks to a man called Noah. And he tells him, listen, I'm going to save you and your family. I want you to build an ark because I'm going to judge the world. I want you to build an ark and I want you to get on the ark with your family. I want you to get the animals on the ark because I'm going to flood the world. And Noah built this ark. He got his family on the ark. No one would listen to him. No one was interested. But that's exactly what God did. He wiped out mankind all apart from Noah and his family. And Noah must have been thinking, hey, this is going to give a second chance to mankind. This is going to be good. The problem was Noah wasn't good. And almost as soon as he came out the ark, he's discovered then and found in reckless drunkenness and sexual immorality. And once again, then mankind goes on a dark and downward spiral before the Lord in its sin. Envy, greed, malice, murder, drunkenness, immorality, difficulty. It just goes from bad to worse. And yet God, in his grace, was not to give up on the promise that he promised his people in Genesis 3.16. He promised his creation that he would make a way for them to come back into an intimate relationship with him. And he promised that he wouldn't wipe them out again. So Genesis chapter 12, in his grace, 
Indeed, in his sovereign grace, he appears to a man called Abraham, a man who at this time was a pagan worshiper living in Babylon, and in sovereign grace, no other explanation for it, in sovereign grace, God chose Abraham. And he comes to Abraham by day, and this is what he tells Abraham in chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. It says, Now the Lord, Yahweh, said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I mean, this is absolute grace. Abraham had done nothing to deserve this. He was a pagan worshiper living in Babylon. But God nonetheless put his sovereign grace on this young man and made it clear, I'm coming after you. And Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And Abraham, as my nation grows through you, if, those, if people curse you as a nation, then I'll curse them. And if people bless you as a nation, then I will bless them. And through you, I will raise a nation that will be a blessing to all nations. It's the Abrahamic covenant. It's one of the most important texts in the entire Bible. We have to understand what God is doing there. Well, Abraham is more shocked than anybody. I mean, he was not looking for God. He was not pursuing God. More than that, both he and his wife are already old in years. He's 75 years old. His wife is 65 years old, and she is barren and has been her entire life. And yet God is now telling him, you're going to have children that multiply more than the stars. And he's looking at his wife and looking at himself and thinking, this probably is not going to happen. But he trusts God. He actually turns in that moment and he chooses to trust God. And it's credited to him as righteousness. And so he leaves exactly like God had told him to do. He leaves his home in Haran and Babylon and makes his way then to Canaan, which God has showed him. And when he arrives in Canaan, God appears to him again and reminds him of the promise he's made to him, telling him again, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to do it all through you. Through you, there are going to be a people, a nation that I call my own. They will be my people, and I will be their God, Abraham. It's going to come through you. Well, for a number of years, it goes quite quiet. And then at 99 years old, 24 years after this calling, God appears to Abraham again when Abraham's thinking, it is really not going to happen. My wife is 89. God appears to Abraham again and reminds him again, I'm coming to you. I'm going to do this. It's my promise. It's not about you. It's about me, Abraham. I'm going to make you into a great nation, a nation that will be a blessing to all nations. And then on Abraham's 100th year of birth, 90th year of life for his wife Sarah, she gives birth to a baby, Isaac. It's a miracle of God's grace. He had opened her womb, even in her old age, and she gave birth to a young man named Isaac, and they loved him dearly. And in time and in years, Isaac grew up. He married a lady called Rebekah, and they had two sons called Esau and Jacob. And God, in his grace, decided to carry on the family line through Jacob, and Jacob, in turn, got married as he got older and had 12 boys. Girls weren't a big thing in the Old Testament, clearly. And they had 12 boys, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Zebulun, Issachar, Gad, Dan, Asher, Naphtali, Joseph, and Benjamin. 
As you start to see as the story goes on into chapters 30 and 31 and 32 and 33, this covenant that God has made to Abraham is already starting to come through. It's hardly a nation, but it is a growing family. So we have Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And it starts to be getting some traction. The problem is, as soon as you hit chapter 37 of Genesis, it appears that the progress is short-lived because Jacob's 12 sons have a few relational issues amongst them, to say the least. In particular, with one of the brothers, the second youngest brother, a boy by the name of Joseph. See, these 12 dudes aren't a big fan of Joseph. There's a couple of reasons for that. Firstly, Joseph is daddy's favorite. He's Jacob's favorite. It's a lesson on parenting right there. Dads do not have favorites. It does not help the other brothers and sisters. This goes horribly wrong. And yet Joseph doesn't exactly help himself either. Because Joseph keeps having these dreams that he keeps in his stupidity telling his brothers about. And so one day he gets up and says, Gosh, you never guess what? I just had a dream. And it's this dream, right? And, and there was these sheaves. And there was, there was like 12 sheaves, and I was like one of the sheaves, and I was just standing there like a dude. And, but there was these 11 sheaves that were, well, they were you, and, and you were bowing down to me. Just want to let you know, you know, not ideal. A couple of days later, he wakes up and said, guys, you never guess what, I just had another dream, and it was the sun and the moon and 11 stars. And I realized, that's you, it's mom and dad and you, and you were all bowing down to me. I mean, I just can't believe it. Now, his brothers, now listen, so that's a note to brothers. Don't do that. Even if God gives you a dream, say nothing, okay? But Joseph wasn't that smart. So he told everybody, he told his brothers, and they hated him all the more. So much so that nine of his older brothers actually conspire to kill Joseph. They've totally had enough of him. They can't believe his arrogance and his pride. So they just went away with him. And so one time when... Joseph has been sent out by his dad to see how the brothers are going as they tend to the flocks. He goes out and none of his brothers see him coming and they're like, this is our chance, this is our chance. Let's kill him, let's get rid of him and let's just tell dad he's been eaten by a wild beast. Well, Reuben, the oldest of the brothers, he interjects and says, we cannot kill him. He feels bad about the whole thing and he decides instead, well, why don't we just sell him into slavery? Reuben was actually going to try and save him, but it went horribly wrong. His brothers just decided, hey, it's a good idea, let's do slavery instead. So that's exactly what happened. These dudes decide to sell Joseph into slavery. They then go back to the dad and they claim that he's been eaten, he's been killed, and Jacob's distraught, as is the younger brother Benjamin. But they knew it was a lie. And the story then from chapter 37 onward picks up about Joseph. And we see Joseph taken away by the Midianite slave traders, These guys that they sell Joseph into, and these Midianite slave traders take Joseph to Egypt. They take him to Egypt, and he spends some years there in Egypt, and in God's kindness, he's bought and purchased by a man called Potiphar. Potiphar is the chief officer of Pharaoh himself. I mean, over time, God gives Joseph favor, so he's actually running the house of Potiphar. Problem is, Potiphar's wife finds Joseph quite attractive. She wants to sleep with Joseph, and Joseph is a God-fearer. He doesn't want to sleep with her, and so she makes up these false claims that he's been trying to sleep with her, and he ends up falsely accused and in jail. It seems to be going from bad to worse for young Joseph. And yet in jail, he, he still clearly has the gift of dreaming and interpreting. So he's chatting to a couple of guys there that happen to be high up with Pharaoh, and 
through a long series of events, Joseph ends up later in his years standing before Pharaoh because Pharaoh's having these dreams that he can't understand. And Joseph explains these dreams to Pharaoh and says, you know, I know what's happening. God's giving you a vision of years of famine, but how if you plan correctly, you will be a blessing to the nations and others will be cared for from you. Well, Pharaoh understands that the hand of God is on young Joseph, and in that moment, he makes Joseph the prime minister of Egypt. Talk about rags to riches. He becomes the prime minister, second only to Pharaoh himself. And through this amazing series of events, Joseph does indeed go on to save not only Egypt, but that embryonic Israel family as well. In chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph says, As for you, looking at his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. He understood that God has been sovereign in all of this. Yes, you sold me into slavery because you didn't want me around. And hey, looking back on it, I kind of get that. I wasn't the best. But what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Because God made me prime minister of Egypt. And Jacob and his brothers come to Joseph. They don't even realize he's still alive. But they come to Joseph and they look to Joseph as the prime minister to feed them. And through a series of events, Pharaoh actually says to Joseph, tell him who you are. Remind them that you're alive, but more than that, move your entire family into Egypt where we can care for them. In fact, there's this area of land in Egypt called Goshen. Tell them to go there. They can look after the livestock and the herds there. They'll be cared for and blessed all the days of their life. So that's exactly what Joseph does. And as the book of Genesis then begins to set, the sun begins to set on the book of Genesis, we see Jacob with all these brothers as this overgrown family, the embryo of the nation of Israel, residing as refugees in Egypt, yet safe and flourishing and completely together. That's the background. That's how they got to where they are. And it should be making us, as Genesis finishes, pregnant with, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? God's made a promise to Abraham that he'd make a great nation out of them that would be a blessing to all nations and would have a land of their own. Well, we don't see that yet, but we do see the embryo. So what's going to happen? Enter. Verse 1. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. You know, that is the exact phrase that Moses already uses in Genesis chapter 46, verse 8. It's the exact phrase that he's already used. He wants to help us see these two things are entirely linked. And what we discover then is Joseph, along with his dad and his brothers, there's around 70, 75 of them, now as refugees in Egypt. And then we read this in verse 6. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation... Now, we should be wondering now, so what happens? Because he dies. Verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Listen, Genesis chapter 12. Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. 
Exodus chapter 1. What's starting to happen? They're fruitful. They're multiplying. They're being made into a great nation. The place is teeming with them, okay? They've gone from a small group of 70 to a growing band of brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. Moses wants us to help us see the Abrahamic covenant. Look at it. It is happening. It's coming true. These things that God said to Abraham are indeed taking place. And so what we have here is a pregnant beginning. We should be tracking and paying attention and going, so what happens next? How do they go from a small group of 70 to a group of one and a half million people? How's God going to get them out and then develop them into a nation of their own through which they'll be a blessing to others? Well, that's what this book is all about. We have to look back to understand how they've got to where they've got to. But then what we must also do is look forward, which is my second point. Look forward. And as we track on this journey, because I want us to track together as a church. I don't want us to get like halfway through and think, what? What is happening? Because that can happen sometimes, can't it? You know, it can happen to me in my own personal reading, let alone series. You get to like chapter 14, like, what? How did we get here? I can't remember anything. It's all gone. I want us to track and understand where we're going on this journey so that as we set off together, we all understand corporately, this is where we're going. This is what's going to happen. And one of the things that can be helpful is understanding that Exodus really fits into four parts. There's really four parts this book tends to go in, and it can be helpful to know so that you can keep track of where we're up to in the story. Part one is really the Exodus story. So it's chapters 1 through 15. So the first 15 books is really a, 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 the key part of the story that many of you and would know, and this is the stuff that many of us would, would know about. It's what you'd think about. In fact, to be honest, if you said to people, what do you think the Exodus is? You would probably tell me the first 15 chapters and forget about the rest of them. Because that's what the common thing that we think about as the Exodus story. So there's lots of familiarity in there. So there's the cry of the people and the call of Moses, the ten plagues, the Passover lamb, and then the release of the people, the parting of the Red Sea, and the song of Moses. That all takes place the first 15 chapters. And what I want you to do, as best as we can, is get Charles Heston out of your mind from the 1956 Ten Commandments film. Get him gone. Get the DreamWorks 1998 movie Prince of Egypt out of your mind. In both of those movies, there are things that happen in those movies that don't happen in the Bible. So try and get them out of your heads. Because Moses is emphasizing very different things to what Hollywood tries to emphasize in those movies. We've got to empty our minds of what we've heard before and just let the text be the text. Let God's word speak to us as God's word does rather than think, oh, I've seen this before. No, I can assure you, you've never seen this before. We're reading it. So let this word play it out in our minds so that we can see it accurately. The first 15 chapters then are the Exodus story. But folks, I want you to understand the Exodus doesn't finish there. Moses didn't sort of think, you know what? I finished the story in the first 15 chapters. I better just fill it out. No, this is God's word. Everything is important. In the first 15 chapters, all we have is drawn out. So all we'd call this series is Exodus drawn out. But the rest of the story is all about how he drew us in. He didn't just draw us out. He then drew them in. And so from chapters 16 to 18, we have part two, which is really the trek in the wilderness. 
the trek in the wilderness from the banks of the Red Sea to the base of Mount Sinai. And that's a really key and important story and journey that God's people go on because it is a journey that is packed with lessons on discipleship for us. And I'm really looking forward to getting there because there's lessons on grumbling and complaining. I mean, these guys are a bunch of whiners. I mean, you see like the Muppets that are the disciples. These guys are worse. You see where they've come from, you know. It's just incredible. I mean, no, no, no sooner has God released his people, taken them through the Red Sea, they, get, they start on their trek and they're like, I quite liked it there actually. Um, Egypt was quite nice. Um, I think I want to go back. You're like, Ugh! you know, that's what we're going to see. That's what happens is several times, not just once, but several times. And so we have some important lessons on complaining and grumbling that the writers of the New Testament draw back on many times. To help us see in the New Testament, don't be like that. Learn from your ancestors. Learn from what went before. They are negative examples to us that we must pay attention to because that's the way they're used in the New Testament. And likewise, there's some important lessons on depending and trusting what it really looks like to follow a pillar of fire what it really looks like to follow a cloud. And then we get to part three, which is chapters 19 through 24, which is really the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. The giving of the law and then the covenant and the confirmation ceremony. And listen, there's a whole load of things in there that are going to be real familiar to you, not least the Ten Commandments. That's where you've got to get Charles Heston out your mind, coming down with his tablets. You'll forget that. But... Moses did indeed carry tablets, which the Ten Commandments were written on. If you want to know how important they were, well, you know what? Usually when God writes something with his finger on stone, it's pretty important. So we're going to see some things that are really important to the Lord and really important to us there. And we're going to see other things in that section that are going to seem strange and odd and somewhat weird to us. Because as you start to look at the minor laws and things around that, you're like, what in the world is that? But they all have things to tell us. And what you'll also find in that section, it is, is full of surprises. It is. Here's one major surprise. Note when the law is given. Not prior to salvation of God's people, but post. He's already redeemed his people. He's pulled them out of slavery. He's already drawn them out. He's now caring for his people. He loves his people. He wants to make them into a great nation. So as a father to a son, what does he do? Hey, guys. This is how it's going to go well for you. I love you. You are my people. I want you to know this is how I'm going to make you into a great nation. This is how you're going to be a blessing to the nations. This is how you're not going to hurt yourself or the neighbors around you. This is how you're going to show that you're my people. That's so important. He didn't give the rule book in Genesis chapter 1. And they say, these are my rules. They blew it. Oh my goodness. We don't get introduced to the law until halfway through the book of Exodus. It's given to God's people as an act of grace to help us understand how life will go well for us, how we can walk in integrity, how we can be a blessing to the nations. It's a small point, but massive, massive in the way that plays out. And then the final section comes in chapters 25 to 40 when we see the building of the tabernacle and the priesthood and the ark. These are the parts that you probably get to and you think, oh my goodness, this is going on and on and on. There's so many measurements. But listen, all that stuff was important to the Lord. 
Moses isn't just popping it in there because it's like, yeah, I've just got to fill space. No, all this was important. And if it's important to the Lord, it needs to be important to us. And so in chapters 25 to 31, we see largely instructions on building the tabernacle and the priesthood and the ark with specificity. In chapters 32 to 34, then, we have the golden calf incident. It's not like a shining light in the story of God's people. They decide that, hey, Exodus, you know, um, this is good. I mean, we've come out through the Red Sea. That was really cool. I love that. But Moses is taking quite a long time up Mount Sinai. So I'm thinking, oh, in fact, I know. Okay, everybody take off the jewelry. Let's make a golden calf and let's start dancing and worshipping a golden calf. Let's make that our God. That's what they did. A million and a half people start worshipping a golden calf. It's not a shining light in the story of God's people, but what is a shining light is the profound mercy and grace and patience and steadfast love he shows them in that moment. How would you feel if you had just rescued your family and then they turn over and say, no, in fact, you don't even exist. I'm worshiping that. And yet God shows them grace and mercy and love and forgives them afresh. And in chapters 35 to 40 then, we see the building of the tabernacle and the priesthood and the ark. And it all concludes then in chapter 40 with the glory cloud of God, which had been always dwelling on Mount Sinai in thunder and earthquake and fire as God meets with Moses coming down from Mount Sinai and going right into the middle of the tabernacle, which is right in the middle of all his people. And so the story concludes. You were drawn out, but you were drawn into a relationship with me. You were drawn into fellowship with me where you will be my people and I will be your God and I will dwell dwell right in the middle of you all. It's a great book. It's a wonderful book. Don't stop it at chapter 15. It is a profound book of what it means to be drawn out, to draw in. And so number three, I just want to give you three things to look out for. I want you paying attention as we go through this book because there are three themes in particular that I think will help us get our handle around the book. Three things that you're going to see quite a few times that you want to be paying attention to. The first first theme that is of note is the, are the attributes of God. The attributes of who God really is. Kevin DeYoung says it this way. He says, if you're thinking that Moses is the main character in the book of Exodus, then you've got a problem. Because Exodus is all about the God who makes himself known. I think that's brilliant. This book is not primarily about Moses. It's about God, and it's about the God who wants to make himself known. All the way through the book of Exodus, he's showing us things about him again and again and again and again. That's deliberate. As you go through this book, you should realize, oh my goodness, God wants to make himself known. And he does all the way through this book. And so we see him in his sovereignty. We see in this book God revealing himself to be the only one who has the right and wisdom and power to act as he pleases. And so in Exodus chapter 3 verse 14, when Moses is saying, hey listen, I understand you're calling me to go to Pharaoh about letting your people go and all that. Who do I say, who do I say send me? The burning bush? I mean, what do I do? It says this, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. 
He's revealing his grand sovereignty to Moses. He's the only one that has the might and the power and the wisdom and the right to act as he pleases. He is the great I am that can do all things for his own glory and know that that's a good thing. He is sovereign over all and he's all powerful. We see it in the plagues, plague after plague after plague after plague, which all have meaning. They're all to do with the pagan gods of Egypt at the time. But each and every time, God is showing them, I am greater than you. I am greater than your gods. I'm greater than every false deity you can throw at me. And each and every time, he shows himself to be powerful above all. The parting of the Red Sea, the defeating of the Egyptian army, which would have been a mighty army, and the releasing of the people from slavery. All the way through that process, time and time again, God is showing himself to be powerful and sovereign and splendid. He also shows himself to be the all-glorious one, manifesting his presence with earthquakes and fire on Mount Sinai in chapter 19 and 20 and 24, and then filling the tabernacle with his manifest glory in chapter 40, so much so that everybody bowed down to worship him in his magnificence. Listen, church, God has not changed. We might have adjusted our view of him, but he has not changed. The same mighty God that you see in the book of Exodus is the mighty God that rules over your life and rules over the earth. This is still him. All sovereign, all powerful, all glorious, and yet all compassionate, caring, merciful, gracious, and abounding in steadfast love. And so we see it time and time again as he hears and responds to the prayers of his people in chapter 2. He hears them. He hears their cry. And he responds. In chapter 3, he sees and cares for the needs of his people. In chapter 34, even when they start dancing and worshipping a golden calf, he comes to them in grace and mercy and forgives them, helping them see I'm a God who's slow to anger, but merciful and gracious and abounding in love. And you are my people. And we see him again and again and again showing his steadfast love and faithfulness to God's people. You know, one of the main reasons then why we decided as a team to take our time through this book, to not just rush it, but to really slow it down, is to give us all time as a church then to stop and stare at the Lord for who he really is. You could do the book of Exodus in 10 weeks, but you ain't going to be stopping and staring in 10 weeks. That's why we decided to make it 51 weeks. Because there's a lot to stop and stare at. And I don't want to miss a thing about the Lord. And so we deliberately slowed it down so that we can create time to stop and stare, to see God for who he really is, not what we think of him but who he really is. You see, one of the main reasons, I believe, why we can so easily in our lives be overwhelmed and be overwhelmed with so many worries and fears and anxieties and distractions is because quite simply we take our eyes off the prize. We forget who God is. We make him so small. We box him off as if he's like a goldfish in a bowl. And then we go to him now and again for help, and maybe he doesn't, at least from our perspective, and so we think, oh, I knew he wouldn't. He's not that big. 
I want us to take the time to stop and stare and see the majesty and splendor and sovereignty and powerfulness and greatness and compassion and mercy and grace and steadfast love of the Lord week after week after week. God is not willing to be a domesticated small God that we make him to be. I think through Exodus he wants to reveal himself to be the majestic God that he really is. So I want us to be looking out for the attributes of God because they're on display all the way through the book. Number two, I want us to be paying attention to the theme of the people of God. His people. Because it's such an important theme in the book. One of the wonderful revelations of the book of Exodus, I believe, is the way in which God views his people. And so we see very early in the book that God views his people as his children. That's beautiful. So in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, he says, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. He's talking about this family, this people, who he promised to Abraham. And he's reminding them, You're it. You're my children. You're my son. I am God in his greatness and splendor and majesty, but you're my children. He views them with such intimacy and grace. And also he views these people as his nation, a nation of his very own, a people that he has drawn out, a people that he has taken from Egypt. He has heard the cry of their soul, seen their slavery and bondage and drawn them out of Egypt. But he's also drawn them in, has he not? He's drawn them in to a relationship with him. Even when Moses is telling Pharaoh what's going on, he's saying, God says to let my people go. Why? So that they may serve him. He doesn't say, well, God wants to free the people so they can do what they like. And so they can live their lives and do their thing and I'll just tag along in the back seat of their car. He says, no, tell my people that I want to save them so that they may serve me so that they may be my people. I don't just want to free them. I want to draw them into fellowship with me. And then he makes it clear that I'm not just drawing them out to draw them into a relationship with me. Oh, no. Just like he promised to Abraham, I will make this nation into a great nation that will be a blessing to all nations. They're going to bless others. This people are going to be my people. They will be my hands and my feet on this earth. They will be the people that will reveal God to the nations. They will be my mediators. They will be the people that show people what I'm like and how I love them and who I really am before them. My friends, we need to be paying attention to this because as far as the New Testament goes, this Exodus story has direct parallels to our Exodus story. That's why it's such a foundational book because it's our story as well. It's not just theirs, it's our story. We too have been drawn out of the world, dead in our transgressions and sins, freely following the power of the air in bondage to the, to the world. And yet God in his grace saved us, didn't he? What did what to? To serve him, to be with him. He freed us to have fellowship with him. He didn't just save us and free us to go on your merry way and live your merry lives. No, I'm going to save you. I'm going to free you so that you can be with me. And so that you can be a blessing to the nations. 
so that you can be my hands and feet, so that you can tell people around me of my goodness and my splendor and my might. I want you to do that. I've saved you to serve. You know, all my life I've heard the phrase, save to serve, save to serve, save to serve. And I've always found it really, really corny, so I've never, ever said it. And reading this, I realized I've been saved to serve. I have. I've been saved out of bondage to the world to serve God, to give myself to Him. That's why Paul says, I'm a slave of Christ. He just doesn't say, I'm free! He says, no. No, I was a slave to the world. Now I'm a slave of Christ. We all have masters. It's just who do you want to bow to? Satan or God? We all serve somebody. My friends, I want you to pay attention then when that comes out. Because it's an important point. It's an important point in the New Testament. 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race. Talking to, to the church, the modern day church, about what happened in Exodus and drawing parallels. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's us. He's telling us, you're the exodus now. That was their time, but this is your time. You are God's possession. You are God's people. Go and tell people of his excellencies. You are saved to serve. You are freed to be in fellowship with him and then serve him. My friends, it's why I think the danger of modern-day Christianity is so dangerous because people have this idea, well, I believe in Jesus, so he saved me, so I'm saved. No. No, actually, it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he died for you, that you'll be saved. That's different. Well, I just believe he saved me. I don't want to follow him as Lord. Okay. So you're near, but you're not in. You just got halfway. You're effectively in no man's land. You're lost in the middle. Christianity comes when you realize, I have been saved by his grace. I bow my knee to him as my Lord. I'm in. I'm coming after you. That's salvation. Let's pay attention to that theme. The important theme of the people of God. And then finally, number three, the third important theme, is the realities of redemption. See, simply put, To redeem is to claim and purchase something back as your own. That's what it means to redeem something. It's to claim and then pay a price, a ransom price, to to purchase something back as your own. So in the Bible, redemption occurs when someone buys back a piece of land, buys back a piece of property that they formerly owned, and they pay a price to release a person from debt or who may be facing a penalty, or we pay a price to buy a person or persons out of slavery or bondage. So it means to redeem somebody or some people. Exodus is the greatest example in the Old Testament of the glories of redemption. It's used that way all the way through the rest of the entire Bible. Because it is the greatest story of redemption in the Old Testament. God's people are in slavery and bondage to the world. And they can't get out. They're crying out to grace. But they're aware, we can't do this. We are in chains. There's nothing we could do to free ourselves. We are, in fact, dead men walking here. There's nothing we can do. 
And yet God in His grace promises them as a people that He will make a way for them to be redeemed. And in the book of Exodus then, what we are introduced to is the startling and painful reality that the price of their redemption, indeed the high price of their redemption, is nothing other than blood. The only way that they can get released, the only way they can get out, is ultimately through the price of blood. He introduces to us that reality in chapter 4, and then he confirms it later on in the 10th plague, when he helps both Israel and Egypt alike see, the only way I can get you out is through the blood and death of the firstborn in each family. In Egypt and in Israel. The only way you can be truly freed (coughs) from the world is the death of your firstborn and the spilling of his blood. You can only imagine the horror that then comes to both Egypt and Israel alike as Yahweh is telling them that. And yet God in his grace also then looked Israel in the eye and said, but for you, in grace and mercy, I'm going to provide a way of escape. And it's going to be through the blood of a substitutionary lamb. So I want the fathers of each and every home in Israel to find a lamb a year old without spot or wrinkle. Don't break any of its bones. And on the night that I ordain it to be, I want you to slit that animal's throat. I want you to kill it. And then I want you to take its blood and I want you to put it around the doorposts of your home. And I want you all to wait within your home ready for release. That's what they do. And the angel of death comes through Egypt. And you can hear screaming and crying through everywhere as the firstborns are being killed, as blood is being shed. But each and every home, with blood on the doorpost, the angel of death passes by, realizing they've substituted a lamb in place of that child. They are free. And God in his grace through this incredible yet horrific event saves his people and year after year then he tells his people remember the Passover. Year after year kill a lamb. Remember all that I have done for you. And for hundreds and hundreds of years that's what they do. They kill lambs each and every year to remind it, to be reminded how they've been released. There's blood and gore and difficulty each and every year until the final prophet John the Baptist, looking at Jesus Christ, says, Behold, the Lamb of God, the one who comes to take away the sin of the world. Every sacrifice that had happened for 1,500 years ultimately pointed to him, and now he has arrived. Worthy is the Lamb of God who is slain. And Jesus all along said, And I have come to give my life as a ransom for many. He is the Lamb of God. He's the one that it always pointed to. My friends, as we then journey through this book, don't miss the themes. Stop and stare at the glories of who God really is in his majesty and splendor and sovereignty and compassion and mercy and love and grace. Understand that the people of God in this book, well, they're you. They're just predecessors. They are, in effect, our ancestors. See the way God deals with them and as his children and as a nation. Take note of how he draws them out to draw them in. He doesn't just draw them out and send them off. He draws them out to draw them in to a relationship with him. 
and pay attention to redemption. Because as Carson tells us, what the cross is in the Gospels, Exodus is in the Old Testament. If we pay attention to what we see, what we will discover is each and every page whispers the name of Jesus. Each and every page is all preparatory for the coming of the glorious Lamb of God. Now, 1,500 years later, Apostle Paul, in writing to Timothy, said the following. He said, All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. My friends, as we spend the next year of our lives in the book of Exodus, let's not miss a thing. This has been breathed out by God for you and for me. So let's lean in and let's see all that he has to tell us. You know, Brendan put this together and he's done a wonderful job. He has served us so very well. And so please bring these every week. Please read them, study them. These will help prepare you to get into this book. And when we gather on a Sunday, let's be leaning in. And would we see him for who he really is? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, would you forgive us for times when we just diminish your stories as if they're for Sunday school kids? Lord, you forgive us for times when we've really refused to see you as you really are, but really made you just into a God of our own liking. Lord, I do pray that as we tour through the book of Exodus, that you would blow our minds. That you would blow our minds with who you really are. And who we really are. And the price indeed that you had to pay to make us your own. Lord, give us the gift of insights then as we go through this. Lord, would we be quick to hear. And would you become more and more marvelous in our eyes. In Jesus' name. Amen.